0: Hey, folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the podcast where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group. This season, we're building for the Fallout role playing game, so if you don't already have a copy of the rules, check out your local game shop or bookstore, or head over to the website, m o d i p h i u s dot net. Before I get into this week's build, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge all of the new listeners we've picked up this season, thanks to those all over the U.S. that have joined us. And I wanted to send out a special thanks to our listeners in Belgium, Brussels specifically, that make it a point to check us out each and every week. All of you are the reason I keep doing this week after week and season after season. And as long as you keep listening, I'll keep cranking out episodes. So as we start the build this week, I need to address a question I was presented with last week. What do we do if the group doesn't connect with Victor to get the quest to get what they need? I think we wrote that out to do everything we could to entice the group to see him, but if they had an exceptionally bad interaction with him, they may very well have decided to blow him off and work on their own. For me, this would be a good spot to drop in somebody from a group member's background, especially if they've got a friend or contact they didn't use when they were looking for information. If that failed, then it's up to you. Create someone who'd be a mid-level player in the illicit stuff, flesh them out a little bit, and then use them as the contact. Moving forward, that will be the contact you'll use when Victor comes into play, and it's pretty easy to make the change. I hope that helps, but now, we build! Last week, we set up this week's adventure by having the group dig up information on Jackson Denman, and it turns out Victor can actually get them close to him, or at least close to those who work for him. We'll pick up right where we left off, which is with the group returning Victor's data card to him. Victor is very pleased with this, especially if this is the second successful job they've done for him. Without a word, he opens up a drawer in his desk and lays out ID cards for each member of the group, as we agreed. I had these identification cards made for you. When we are finished here, Bruno will take you to my storage building. You will find uniforms there that will get you into building. What you do once you are there is your business, but I would ask that if you find interesting information, like the kind of information a man like myself could use, you come to me and we can work out a deal for me to purchase said information. The ID cards have a company logo on them for Jessup Chemicals. There's nothing else on them, but Victor will note that all of the info is on a chip contained inside the card. Name, employee number, photo, etc. He also provides them with the address, which is the site of the old Union Station, about a 20-minute walk west of Diamond Pass. He will warn them, though. My people have had run-ins with super mutants in the area, so I would advise you to use caution or massive firepower. Either method would work. Each character gets a name when they get their card. You can either create your own or use what I've got here. Sterling Church, Louis Akron, Mark Zenith, Tad Moore, Julius Nixon. Now, if there are robots in the group, that's a different story. Victor will have Bruno upload new designations when the group gets their uniforms. Basically, come up with an ID number, say BN2345 or something. There will also be permissions uploaded, which will give them the same types of access as the rest of the group. And if you've got women in your group, alter the names I've got however you want or create new ones for them. I am not trying to be sexist here. My group just happens to be all dudes at this point. When the group is done chit-chatting with Victor, he presses a button on his desk and Bruno comes along a few moments later. Victor gives Bruno instructions to take the group to the storage building and provide them with the things Victor had discussed with him earlier in the day. Bruno responds appropriately and requests that the group, follow me. They head through the bar and out the front, and Bruno turns left, away from the path the group has taken to get here more than once, and heads for the outfield. If questioned, he'll respond, Mr. Victor chose a spot where he believes nobody's going to think to look. Bruno's not one for small talk, so if the group wants to chat, they'll need to do it amongst themselves. It only takes a few minutes to get into the outfield, center field to be exact, and Bruno stops at a ramshackle building set directly against the old outfield wall. It looks nearly identical to all of the buildings around it, as well as the rows of buildings above it, as the buildings in this area are built with at least one building stacked on top of another. Bruno accesses the security pad on the door and gains access. He motions for the group to enter, and he follows in behind them. Victor described this place as a storage building, but what the group sees looks more like somebody's home. A battered couch, chair, and coffee table in the section nearest the door, a small kitchenette in the far corner, and a short hallway leading to what they assume is a bedroom. And if they go to check, by the way, that's confirmed. It's got a couple of dirty mattresses on the floor and an old, obviously abused dresser. There's nothing in this building that looks like what they were promised. Just about the time they begin to wonder whether or not they've been set up, Bruno finally speaks to them again. If uh, you could do me the courtesy of moving the coffee table to the kitchen, I'll access the storage room. When they move the table, Bruno lets out an exceptionally high frequency burst. The group will hear it, but it's so high they barely register it. If by chance the group has a dog, you know, dog meat, the dog will howl in pain. Fortunately, it's only a few seconds long. The burst ends, and a four foot by four foot section of the floor drops a few inches, then slides under the rest of the floor. The group can see down 20 feet to the floor below, and they notice metal ladder rungs built into the wall. They're way down, they realize. Bruno looks at the group. My associate Otto will help you when you get down there. When you finish, please climb back up and I'll lead you back to the home plate district. You can get to the station from there. Heading down the ladder, the group realizes that Victor took a part of a vault, reinforced it, added security measures, and is using it for storage. The first clue to this are the laser turrets they notice mounted in nearly every corner. While the turrets move to target the group, they don't fire, which means either Bruno or Otto gave the signal to allow them in here. The size of the area they're working with is also a giveaway. While the floor space in the building above was probably 35 by 35, the floor space down here is at least double that. And the walls definitely appear to be thicker than standard steel walls, and that comes from a section that sticks out from the rest of the wall, producing a bit of a hiding spot on the right side of the room about halfway through. Their eyes are drawn to a very old, very worn looking Mr. Handy Robot floating around the room. Its metallic skin is faded, with some rust spots showing on its dome. One of its pinchers seems to have been busted off, and wires hang from the spot it was once in. As it turns to approach them, smoke or steam or something seems to be coming from it, though it's a it's a momentary thing. It glides to them, then speaks. Now, I, I do need to pause here for a minute to lay out Otto's speech. He's been down here for a long time, and we'll get into why he looks the way he does in a minute. He's got a bit of a glitch, so his speech will be erratic. He'll start a sentence intending to say one thing, but change it without warning. Play this how you want. I just wanted to lay out how I see him. Greetings, strangers. Uh, Bruno brought you here today for me to, to, to deal with. The group will inquire as to what he means by that, and he'll respond. Apologies. My programming has a, uh, uh, does Mr. Victor know you're here? You're not supposed to be here, you know. They'll correct him, of course. Now, if someone offers to help him, he'll refuse. I do not require assistance, thank you. My programming is... Oh, oh, you're the ones Mr. Victor sent here for uniforms. I have coveralls for all of you in the... You are not supposed to be here. Activate lasers. The group will probably prep themselves for a fight, but the lasers never activate. The group will hear Bruno's voice behind them. Yo, Otto. These people have Mr. Victor's permission to be here. You are to provide the uniforms you were instructed to provide. No lasers, no dealing with them. Those are Mr. Victor's orders. Otto seems to be processing the information for several moments, then responds. In this moment, it would seem that all of his issues have cleared up, apparently. But his voice changes to a more feminine tone. Well, of course, Bruno. Mr. Victor made his instructions very clear. Provide the coveralls, make sure they fit properly, then send them back upstairs to you. Otto floats over to a cabinet and opens the door. Sliding out a long rack of coveralls, he eyes each member of the group. As he finishes his check, he produces a set of coveralls that appear to fit each character properly. The robots, if any, are next. However, Otto does seem reluctant about that. The voice changes again to a meek, very weak male. Bruno, I I believe my fellow robot types would feel reluctant to allow me to upload the data. Would you mind? Bruno agrees and directs the robots to follow him to a terminal on the other side of the jutout. out He produces a data card for each robot and gives the robot the choice to insert it into its own data port. If they're okay dealing with Bruno handling it, he will. Once all of this is done, Otto speaks again. This time he sounds like a game show host. On behalf of Mr. Victor, Bruno, and everybody here at the Big Uniform Game Show, I'd like to invite you to have a positive day and don't forget to spay and neuter your pets. Otto then shuts down and Bruno suggests the group head back up the ladder and into the house. One thing we need to note is that Otto will not at any point acknowledge the changes in his voice, nor will he talk about the differences the group notices. In fact, if he says anything about it, he'll be offended that they'd say something like that. I'm certain that at some point, once they're out of the basement, the group will ask Bruno about Otto. Here's what he says. I know you might feel sympathetic towards Otto, and I once felt the same way. However, his duties in the storage area are protect him, you see. Uh, he's a little um, eccentric. Something happened to him like 80 years ago and his programming picked up a glitch. And and despite the boss's best efforts, nothing short of a full wipeout is ever going to fix him. And, and I can't let that to happen because he's, he's like a family to me. So Mr. Victor gave him a job to do and put him somewhere he couldn't be a danger to himself or others. I mean, you saw where he snapped off one of his own pinches trying to reprogram the lasers. If he was allowed to wander out amongst the people, he'd have to be destroyed. He's got one more thing to say on the topic. Otto doesn't actually have the ability to turn the lasers on and off. I've given him that impression over the years, but only myself and Mr. Victor actually control him. That being said, he's really good at keeping the inventory down there. He can tell you where everything is down there, up to and including the number of rivets in the walls. So he's doing exactly what he does best, and Mr. Victor is giving him a chance to continue to function. Bruno doesn't say anything else about this, and really doesn't want to talk to anybody. He gets him to the home plate section, then bids them adieu. Mr. Victor hopes his assistance helps you to do what you need to do. Please don't hesitate to come back and see us when you're done. The group can get out of Diamond Pass from here, and they know they need to head west towards Union Station. Now, for those of you who've been checking up on my work as we go along, Union Station still exists in real time. Nowadays, it's the home of a big aquarium, but in the fallout world, it was still a functioning train station when the bombs dropped. Since then, there have been a number of folks who've tried and failed to rehab the structure in some form. However, by this point, it's obvious that somebody finally succeeded. Granted, they didn't get the whole thing done, but they've got enough done to have a rather large facility to work with. But first, we kind of have to get the group there. They'll make their way about halfway there before they run into an issue, and they'll hear it before they see it. They'll hear the grunts and guttural groans of what they know are super mutants, and they'll know it because they just heard stuff like that when they infiltrated the Opera House. It only takes a moment before the owner of those sounds makes his present known. It's definitely a super mutant, and it's definitely interested in the group. Now, I think we've mentioned this a time or two during the season, but super mutants are on page 366, and you'll want to keep that open because your group will be fighting them one way or the other. Let's go over the possibilities. The group can stand their ground against the mutant that's there right now. What'll happen is that at some point towards the end of the first round of combat, enough super mutants to equal one less than the number of group members, and that includes the one they're already fighting, will show up to try to even the odds. If the group chooses to cut and run, they'll eventually be cornered by the same number of super mutants. So this is going to be a fight regardless. But should they survive, they can loot and get more stuff. Yay? <laughs> Once this battle's done though, they've got a clear shot to the station. Now in the Fallout world, the station looks much different than it does now. The only thing still standing is the actual building. The steel beams that stand at present are gone. The train shed is gone. Heck, half the building stands is rubble. However, the half that remains is impressive. It's a mix of brick and steel standing about four stories tall. The group notices a plethora of laser turrets and Protectron robots wandering the perimeter, and there's only one way to get into the building, and that's through a guard post set up on the east side of the building. Fortunately for the group, and unfortunately for Jessup Chemicals, the guards here are underpaid and exceptionally bored, so they don't do much more than just make sure the group inserts their cards into the card reader and that the light turns green. For robots, they have to scan a pad that they hold out. All lights turn green, and the group is allowed into the building one at a time. So they've got an entry into the building, but they don't really have much in the way of a direction or a plan. That's one thing Victor didn't provide them with, so they need to figure out a plan. Now, this would be a good time to pause things because some of the things we note here could be done before the group actually heads this way. They need to decide what they want to do when they get in here. Do they just want to access a terminal and dig up as much information as possible? Do they want to infiltrate the production floor if there is one and see for themselves what Jessup's making? And how can they be 100% certain Victor provided them with the clearances they need to even do any of these things? The last one is the easiest to check. If the group has a robot, it can read the card. All it reads is the binary code imprinted on it, but it can make out enough to know the group has access to computer terminals and the doors to the production floor. They don't have access to high-level offices, but what they've got should be enough to get them what they need. And of course, the group has proven thus far to be resourceful enough to figure out how to get further along than they're technically supposed to, so once they get in, they might just be able to get wherever they want to go. Now, insofar as retrieving data or getting onto the production floor, those are both viable options and we'll detail each of those out separately. So let's pick up where we paused things and we'll proceed with the group looking for a terminal they can access to dig up information. Now they're probably looking for information about Jackson Denman and also probably for Paul and the project he was working on. Anything else will be gravy. First things first though, they need a terminal. As they make their way through their hallways, they run into a number of people dressed exactly as they are. Some will acknowledge them with nods, maybe a hello or two. Not a lot of eye contact and certainly no small talk. There's not really a search role in Fallout, so we'll go with intelligence plus science to find a computer terminal. Don't ask me why I chose those. I needed to use something. Difficulty is a two and that's mostly because they've never been in here before and they're trying to find the terminal casually. You know, I don't know, fly casually. Anyway, They'll succeed because, of course, they will, and they'll find a smallish office upstairs from where they came in. They'll have chosen this one because there's nobody in the office, and they'd seen multiple people in each of the other offices they'd been in on the way up here. So it's time to get in. Fortunately, their data cards give them access. However, it should occur to the group that whomever logs in will probably have their ID tracked, so they should be aware of this. Intelligence plus science again. We've actually got two difficulties for this, and they give up certain amounts of information. A difficulty one success brings up this information Jessup Chemicals has three facilities around the city, not including the one they're in one in the Cleeds Landing, which is the one they've seen, one inside the dome, it's very well hidden, and one inside the old Barnes Jewish Hospital. The Laclede's landing location is working on the formula for the super mutant formula, though it doesn't say at this level what that formula does. The dome facility is experimenting on a food additive that keeps the population docile. There's more to it, but they can't access it at this level. The hospital facility is working on new surgical techniques in combination with new chemicals. A Difficulty 3 success adds this information. The super mutant formula is designed to create super mutants that are completely obedient to a particular individual. The only thing they haven't been able to work out yet is how to designate the individuals the mutants are supposed to follow. Paul Vernon was on the brink of finding the key, but his redacted. And since then, Jessup's chemists have not been able to replicate it. The food additive was designed to work on both the brain and the central nervous system. The chemicals involved attach themselves to key receptors in both systems. One of the effects is extra production of dopamine, but the other is redacted. The hospital facility's surgical techniques are involving the possibility of attaching fully functional artificial limbs to those who've lost theirs. They've been running into issues with both the limbs and the chemicals they're working up to increase the possibility of acceptance of the artificial limb. This is the only entry that isn't redacted, and it continues. The surgeons working on this experiment have run into issues finding amputees to work with, but Mr. Zorn has worked out a method of providing them with candidates they can experiment on. However, with the number of rejections they've had, they've also had issues with the candidates passing away. There's one more piece of information the group finds with this level of success that's going to interest them. Jackson Denman and Mr. Zorn meet with the staff at the hospital location once a week, though the day of the week varies from week to week. Apparently Denman has a very personal interest in this particular project. Okay, so we haven't discussed what happens if there's a complication on the roll. They can still get all of the relevant information, but once they log out, an alarm goes off in the building, followed shortly thereafter by an announcement we have a security breach in the facility. I repeat, we have a security breach in the facility. Please ensure all terminals are secured. That message will repeat again and again on loop. Now, I'll bet your group decides to split up to cover more ground. Besides, if they split up, it looks a little less suspicious as they move around. So let's cover what the other group finds when they head out onto the production floor. The production floor is a variety of vats connected to assembly lines with vials on them. Above the line, tubes and hoses run, and they note that liquid is dispensed into the vials, and someone at the end of the line stuffs stoppers into the vials. Another person at the end of the line pulls one or two from it and heads off to a terminal, apparently testing the product. There are a number of other individuals dressed in coveralls moving around the floor, checking this machine and that machine... The group will draw glances, but not very long ones. As they wander the floor, they eventually come up on an open terminal, which they can use if they choose. No check required, as this is a production floor-specific terminal, so whomever uses it can find out what's being produced. Here's what we've got. Modified stim packs, modified overdrive, and garbage. Now, the group will wonder what the modified chemicals will do, but short actually taking one, there's no way to figure it out. However, since you need to know, let's lay this out. Modified Stimpaks actually damage the individual, taking four health points away from the person it's administered to. However, it has an additive that works with the brain to convince it it's actually been healed. Modified Overdrive doubles the result of Overdrive. There's a major problem though. It lasts until the end of the combat round, after which the user falls to zero health points and is considered to be unconscious. Garbage is a chemical of my own creation. It has no beneficial effects to its user and leads to addiction from the first use. Continued usage of it, which the addiction pretty much guarantees, will eventually transform the user into a ghoul. Continued usage after that will turn the ghoul feral. If someone is dumb enough to actually use this, I'll provide more details on it, but since it looks and smells like rank garbage, chances are nobody's going to try it. We know our groups, they're going to each want to snag a vial or two, so let's do the agility plus sneak roll difficulty 3. Success means that each person who succeeds can snag two vials of whatever substance they're trying to snag. No more, no less. And for the record, the vials have Jessup Chemical Company LTD printed on them, so they'll be identifiable to anyone who gets a hold of one. If someone trying to snag a vial has a complication, as they grab them, someone notices and calls out, Security! We have unauthorized personnel taking vials! The group will quickly notice men in great uniforms, like the guys they saw on the Landing the other day, come towards them holding laser rifles. Smart move here, kids, is to Run! As they start to do that, they hear the alarm about securing security terminals, and suddenly attention is shifted from them to following the order which will allow this group to get out. So, let's bring our groups together at the bottom of the staircase the computer room comes down from. They realize quickly that the door they came in has been locked and secured, so they're gonna need another way out. And I realize we're ending the build on a cliffhanger, but that is the end of the build for this week. Next week, we resolve our cliffhanger and continue moving the group towards getting their hands on somebody. Will it be Jackson Denman or somebody else? Only time will tell. In the meanwhile, check out our other fine podcast, Role Playing History. This week, we take a closer look at Iron Crown Enterprises and the Rolemaster game. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the copyrighted and trademarked property of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this podcast for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out all of the fine products from Modifius Entertainment, check out their website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com/forward/slash/gaming/forward/slash/badgmprod, on Twitter at badgmp, YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online our website is badgmproductions.net. Okay, so next week we've got a cliffhanger to resolve, and once we've done that, we've got more adventures on this particular path to build out. But that's next week, folks. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.